Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1757, Benjamin Franklin returned to London after an over 30-year absence. He first ventured to the imperial capital in 1724 to continue his education as a printer. He went back in the late 1750s as a politician after being named the London agent for the Pennsylvania Assembly. Franklin took up residence at 36 Craven Street in London, today just down the way from Charing Cross Station and right near Trafalgar Square. For nearly two decades, with a short return to Philadelphia in between, Franklin lived on Craven Street as he tried to advance colonial interests in the mother country. On today's episode, Dr. Marcia Beluciano joins me from London to explore the Craven Street house that Franklin made a home. Dr. Beluciano is the founding director of the Benjamin Franklin House in London, the world's only remaining Franklin home. And as you'll hear, the historic site not only connects us to Franklin in his life, but to the era of the English Civil War in the 1640s and to the 18th century secrets buried in the basement. Be sure to stay tuned after our chat to hear our first listener voice message. We'll feature your comments and questions on the show from time to time, and you can find out how to submit one of your own later in the program. And with that, let's explore the Benjamin Franklin House of London with Dr. Marcia Beluciano. Marcia, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you are coming to us from London, and I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about the Benjamin Franklin House and its history. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Even if I were not in the same room and I get to be in London, Benjamin Franklin House is an absolute gem. It is the only house still standing anywhere in the world where Benjamin Franklin lived and worked. It's located in the heart of London, just steps from Trafalgar Square, not far from Parliament, not far from the city of London, which is the financial center. And in fact, that's probably one of the selling points of the house as it was in the 18th century when Benjamin Franklin arrived in July of 1757 to serve as the agent for Pennsylvania, that he could do his work related to parliament and political affairs, but then he was very close to everything else as well. The house has a long history before Franklin arrives there in 1757. Can you tell us about its construction when it was created, when it was built, and its history before Franklin went to London to act on behalf of various colonies. So if we look at the street itself, it is called Craven Street today. And it is said that it was originally called Spur Alley, not far from today's Trafalgar Square, as I mentioned, and Cockspur Street. And supposedly there was cock fighting. So Spur Alley with a little bit of a, a curve as you would get um, to the top of the street. It was the result of the houses that you can see that still stand from the 18th century today. And Craven Street has one of the longest set of Georgian terrace houses that still remain. It was a gentrification project of the Craven family because they had been supporters of the, of the Charleses. So if we remember that Charles I was uh, decapitated um, at the beginning of the English Civil War, the crown uh, and those that had been supportive of the crown uh, sort of dissipated, but that, 
that support remained and the Craven family who had decided to stay loyal were eventually rewarded when Charles II was reinstated the restitution of the monarchy after the end of the English Civil War. So the Cravens took what was a fairly urban street, uh, very small, uh, supposedly metal worker shacks and probably quite run down. And they thought if we build kind of state of the art terrace houses and we keep what's called the freehold, the land on which it sits, uh, and we give long-term leases, this could be quite lucrative. And that's exactly what they did. They built these houses and Benjamin Franklin House is one of the early houses. It's circa 1730. And I don't know that they ever thought that the house would still be standing nearly 300 years on because they are, they were built with kind of uh, post and beam construction, a lot of pine wood, although, but when we were doing conservation, you could get a sense of the, the size and strength of that pine, for example, in the, one of the main beams at the top of the house, which runs all the way from the beginning of the house to the back part of the house, uh, a single beam. So if you think about where that probably grew, maybe somewhere in Scandinavia, and if the house was built circa 1730, this would have been a, a 17th century tree that probably was transported in, into London. Uh, but these houses, many of them did manage to survive a, a lot of things that didn't necessarily do them any favors. And some examples of that would be, oh, it's said that an incendiary bomb fell on the house during the Second World War, but didn't explode. But even earlier, the Victorians would carve up spaces in a Georgian terrace house, which is, it sounds quite grand, but this is workaday, small, uh, two rooms or two and a half rooms in our case, up and down. So they, they were not grand by any stretch of the imagination, but the Victorians were using the house as a lodging house. And in fact, that's what it was when Franklin's landlady, Margaret Stevenson, had the lease on the house, and uh, they would divide up as much as they could because the more individual spaces, then the more rent you could get. Um, so it was, was used as a lodging house, although there's this wonderful quote in the Carl Van Doren Pulitzer Prize winning book, Benjamin Franklin from the 1930s, which says that Franklin was less a lodger than the head of a household living in serene comfort and affection. Supposedly, he even had a cat. Miracle, I guess, that it did survive all these years. And my first thought was the Blitz in 1940 and surely probably faced some kind of catastrophe from German raids and whatnot. But then thinking about the, you know, the earlier period, the Victorian period you outlined is equally fascinating. It's a remarkable thing, I think, when you've got, and is am I right, this is the last surviving Benjamin Franklin home in existence on either side of the Atlantic? Yes, that's right. So he had his wife start building a house. Uh, so Benjamin Franklin comes a second time to London. He first comes to London as a, in his late teens. So if we just do a quick kind of run through of Benjamin Franklin's life, he's born 
1706 in Boston to a fine family, but a working class family. And he is eventually apprenticed to his brother James as a, as a young, young boy and really chafes under his brother's watchful eye. And probably James was starting to be a little bit suspicious. Uh, James decided to start printing a newspaper at some point and then was said to have printed something seditious and it lands him some time in jail. And so he turns over the keys of the printing press uh, to his brother, his young brother, who performs really quite well. And in fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who only had a very short period of formal learning, who was by and large you know, completely self-taught, used to read things like the Spectator magazine, which is still in existence, and tried to mimic the writing. And so when James is in jail, he is taking on a persona of a woman, old woman named Silence Duguid, and uh, puts a charming, funny piece in the paper, and it proves quite popular. And so probably life might have become a little bit more difficult for Franklin. But anyway, he, he runs away, and he makes his way to, to Philadelphia. And the lure is, as uh, Franklin describes in his first part of his autobiography, that uh, he meets the the then governor of Pennsylvania who says, oh, you seem like a charming and bright young man and you tell me that you want to be a printer. Well, if you're going to learn about that trade properly, you need to go to London and you need to study the trade and, and you're so promising, I'm going to help finance your, your voyage. And he's writing right before he's due to sail off to England for the first time. And of course, no money is ever forthcoming, but Franklin makes the trip anyway. And he learns a tremendous amount about the trade, but also a lot about life. Franklin had an illegitimate son, William. We don't know who William's mother was. Maybe she was somebody that he, that he met. He, on the one side, he talks about pursuing uh, worldly things during his time, but on the other, he also criticizes some of the pressmen that he comes into contact with because, well, there's very little fresh water, so they're drinking porter or small beer and maybe being a little bit tipsy on the job, and, and Franklin looked askance at that, but that was his first time to, to come to London. But when he comes back, again, it's a completely different set of circumstances. Franklin was at that point when Franklin comes back in 1757, he's the most famous colonial of his day for a few reasons. One is that when he goes back after this uh, time as a, as a very young man to Philadelphia, he eventually buys a failing newspaper and then buys out a business partner and he just doesn't look back. He's uh, doing great things with his press and his, and his printing. He's also very much focused on his own learning and development, sharing that. He sets up the what's called the Junto, which is a bunch of friends getting together, sharing books, sharing ideas. And out of this come many of Franklin's famous civic contributions like 
the first lending library in America, the first fire insurance company, an early hospital, the Pennsylvania Hospital, um, one of the first universities, uh, what becomes the University of Pennsylvania, etc. So he is uh, making a big mark in terms of his commitment to society, but he is also interested in really delving into a couple areas as his business does very well, as he's entering his 40s, he wants to get a business partner, one that he can trust this time so that he can pursue two passions. One is politics. So he becomes a clerk to the Pennsylvania Assembly, then becomes an elected official, and then his other passion, which is science. So whether he did or did not do the Kite and Key experiment, he certainly wrote about it. And before coming to London that second time, made a member of the Royal Society, which is today still the preeminent body for science um, in this country. So he was well known for that, but he also had what was the colonial equivalent to a bestseller in Poor Richard's Almanac, which is where he put lots of aphorisms that he had seen or borrowed or stolen or wrote and lots of helpful advice. And it proved the almanacs incredibly popular. It was also financially lucrative, which allowed him to do these other things. And so when he is coming to London the second time, as I say, he's already a member of the Royal Society, what today is called the Royal Society of Arts, which grew out of a coffee house, uh, decided that they wanted Benjamin Franklin to be their first international member. And when he comes to London with the Society of Arts, Commerce and Manufacturers, as it was known, he takes a very active role. And so he really sets up at Craven Street what you could call the first de facto American embassy. Well, that's a really fascinating way to look at it, I think. And so maybe give us a little bit more color about what Franklin's intentions are when he comes to London in 1757. What is he there to do and, and what does he hope to achieve? He was sent to get the Penn family, the proprietary owners of Pennsylvania. Their father, the two Penn brothers, was William Penn, who was the founder of the colony of Pennsylvania. And there were expensive things happening on the home front, like the French and Indian War. And they wanted to have the Pens, the Pennsylvanians, pay more tax to support a proxy war between the British and the French called the French and Indian War. It was expensive. It was an uncertain time because your borders were fairly far extended. And they felt that the Pens weren't paying all of what they should be for the defense of their own colony. So Franklin gets sent to do that negotiation, and they found Franklin to be rather uncouth because he didn't observe their expectations of how diplomatic engagement was conducted. Perhaps he was too forthright, and they just uh, they didn't like dealing with him. But he thinks by 1762, so between 1757 and 1762, and, and he's doing lots of other things, uh, not just negotiating with the pens. He loves being in London. He, as I was saying before about the coffee house London, 
and the Club of Honest Wigs and the Society of Arts. You know, he really engaged with fascinating individuals and was continuing to work on his scientific pursuits and writing a lot and traveling. This was London uh, in the 18th century was definitely perhaps the most exciting city in the world. And here Franklin who had come from an important burgeoning town in America, well, his adopted town of Philadelphia, but it was no match for the delights of, of London. So he, he thinks by 1762 that he's done the best that he could. And so he goes back um, to Pennsylvania and it isn't long before it's felt that more needs to be done to represent the interests of the Pennsylvanians before the crown, he gets sent back and others, other colonies have a similar view. So Franklin is the eventually not only the agent for Pennsylvania, but also for Georgia and New Jersey and Massachusetts. So he's got this, official work that he that he needs to do and so he was delighted to come back to to London and he actually is very focused on having his wife build a house on that when he comes back as a kind of consolation prize for uh, him going off again, and in fact, they will never see each other again in, in life. Uh, he has her start building a house, and that house today is run by the U.S. National Park Service in Philadelphia. It uh, comprises the printing press where uh, Franklin uh, would have had his business, and it has the architectural footings, that's the only thing that remains of that house that Franklin had his wife start building. And in fact, um, it's a wonderful museum that uh, reopened uh, not long after the 300th birthday of Benjamin Franklin in 2006, which is when Benjamin Franklin House opened to the public for the first time. So when Franklin is in London then advocating on behalf of colonies, like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, et cetera. How does he make Craven Street his home? Well, what he leaves behind in Philadelphia is a wife and a daughter. His son, William, came with him initially and is studying for a law degree before the bar. And he leaves behind Deborah, who was his common-law wife. Interestingly, he, Franklin, when he first arrives, is that young man making his own way in the world in Philadelphia, he ends up staying at the home of Deborah Reed. And perhaps there was a fledgling romance, but Franklin was not going to be swayed in going to London to learn how to become a, a proper printer. Uh, but poor Deborah, she, she got left behind. And when Franklin returns, they become reacquainted. Uh, she had gotten married in his absence to a ne'er-do-well husband who 
disappeared and his body was never found. So in that case, they couldn't be legally married. So it's probably not very well known that Franklin had a common law wife and was never formally married. But uh, he and Deborah had a, a close friendship and respect for one another, even though she was not his intellectual equal. And when he does spend this time, these times in, in London, when he goes back uh, again um, in this you know, heightened position that he's in both times uh, from 1757 and then again in 1764, not leaving again until the first shots are going to be fired in Lexington and Concord, 1775, he has uh, Deborah Start, start building this house. And he's very detailed, Franklin, about what he is sending. He's very much a micromanager. I think if I was Deborah, I would have found him a little bit irritating at times. <laughs> but he's very detailed about what he's sending. On, on the other side, what he finds in, in London at Craven Street is a kind of surrogate wife and daughter. Margaret Stevenson was the leaseholder on the house. She had a young daughter and the families were very friendly. They were always asking after one another, uh, Deborah about Margaret and Margaret vice versa, and also sending things for one or the other back and forth. But his adopted daughter, if you will, in Polly, Margaret's daughter, it was a really close friendship that they had. And we know a lot about that friendship because Margaret Stevenson was a widow, and so her daughter would often go traveling around, staying with relatives, or, and then, of course, Franklin traveled a lot. So you have this wonderful exchange of letters. And this young woman, Polly, she was so bright, so interested in all the different subjects that she would speak to uh, Franklin about that they had a really wonderful correspondence. In fact, in one of the letters, Franklin is saying, I don't have to sign this letter with affection because the fact I've been corresponding with you on this topic over so many pages, it just indicates the esteem that I, that I have for you after writing however many folio pages of, of natural philosophy to a young girl, certainly um, having affectionate closing is not necessary because this letter says it all. And they, they would write to each other about the effect of light on uh, and the weight of clothing you know, based on the light and whether uh, darker clothes were warmer or what you would do wanted to test something on snow and he, they just had this very uh, rich correspondence. So he finds a home in London. He felt very comfortable um, at Craven Street. And actually, so it goes, Franklin gives Polly away when she gets married. Uh, she got married to a young surgeon named William Hewson and uh, Franklin teases her a bit, but uh, she wanted Franklin, of course, the, the first opportunity. I think uh, he was traveling and would come back and, and meet William Hewson. William Hewson, in terms of his professional life, he was doing uh, dissections originally with one of the famous Hunter brothers, uh, an early anatomist, William Hunter. 
and they had a falling out and Benjamin Franklin intervened and eventually Franklin encouraged William to set up his own anatomy school. And in fact, just like Franklin before him, who received the Copley Medal, which was a very prestigious prize for his work on electricity, William Hewson received the Copley Medal uh, thanks uh, to his membership in the Royal Society for his work on the human lymphatic system. And we kind of get a three for one deal with Benjamin Franklin House because we get the story of Franklin. We also get the architectural value of the building. It is a grade one listed building, which is the highest heritage rating you get in England for the amount of original fabric that is there, as well as the connection with Franklin. But the third area that we get is medical history, because when he, William Hewson, the young surgeon, Polly's husband, had his breakup with uh, William Hunter, he was encouraged by Franklin to set up his own anatomy school at what is today 36 Craven Street. So for a time, Franklin uh, and Margaret move out uh, to another house on the street, but it's actually one of the saddest letters that Franklin wrote from the house. Polly had two young children and was pregnant with a third when William Hewson cut himself during a dissection and developed septicemia and, and died. So we suspect that Franklin and Polly came back together and, and her mother, Margaret Stevenson, back at 36 Craven Street. But when we were doing conservation work to help a building that had suffered with time, because as I was describing earlier, with the busy Victorians cutting into one of the main structural beams of the house, as more and more water came back into the London water table, in the late 20th century, when it wasn't being used for manufacturing, it created something called subsidence, which is a kind of fundamental destabilization of the, of the foundation of the building. So there was a lot of work. Uh, the house was derelict for over 25 years before it opened on Franklin's 300th birthday. But when we were doing repair work in the basement, we came across some human remains. So this is the third area that we get. We get Franklin, we get the architectural value, and then we also get the medical history. So the coroner of London, a gentleman named Dr. Paul Knapman, was called in and he determined that the bones were over a hundred years old. No inquest would be necessary because no one would know who those people once were. And we were doing this repair work. It's very expensive when you have construction going on. But we stopped and said to the Institute of Archaeology at um, University College London, you've got a brief period of time to dig up out of the basement in a one meter wide, one meter deep pit, all of what you can find. And out of that one bone pit came 1,200 pieces of people. And these are the remnants of the anatomy school. Now, one of the things that we also found we found animal remains from the Hewson School in the front, in the uh, unused coal depositories, basically closets, if you will, that run under the street uh, because your coal would be dropped from the center and you would, it's very dirty and messy and you would have it there and then you would just uh, retrieve what you needed. So we found animal remains there, but we also in the bone pit 
found turtle bone and mercury. And that links back to the work that Houston was doing, which he wrote about, uh, which he was recognized for by the Royal Society, winning that Copley Medal, as I mentioned, because he would use as a proxy for the human limb system turtles by injecting mercury um, through their bloodstream. Golly, that's incredible. It's, it's yes. A, it sounds like a fun place to work then. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, well, sometimes people contact us and they say, oh, we would like to do a seance or um, do you feel that there are bad spirits? Uh, no, we don't. Actually, the house has a wonderful energy uh, to it. And we have some bones uh, in the house, but most are still uh, with uh, the archaeology team at UCL. And they reveal fascinating things about the history of medicine because you can see that the femurs, for example, were cut in certain ways that were teaching people, teaching uh, surgeons how to conduct amputations. And when you think about the time that this was happening, a lot of your diplomacy was happening on the battlefield. So these were good Mm -hmm. skills to have, but it's it's also incredibly moving. There's a fetal skeleton, child skull, So we know that the house next door was the home of a man midwife uh, called Dr. John Leake. We don't know exactly where the operating theater would have been because the construction of the the basement isn't quite what it would have been in Franklin's day. In fact, the back of the house would have been, if you can imagine, a long drop lavatory. And it also would have had a gate. Now, uh, if you come, there's a Charing Cross station, which is one of the main rail stations in London, is there in the back of the building. Uh, but actually, there would have been a gate and it would have led to Hungerford House, which was one of the great houses uh, in that part of, of London. And I don't know, uh, Jim, if you remember the two things that Benjamin Franklin said you could count on in life death and taxes. Death and taxes, exactly. So a lot of those large houses, they kept s- selling off parts and pieces. And in fact, that's actually what did in the Craven family, because they, the landed aristocracy, as I was saying earlier in our conversation, stays landed because they don't sell the land. But when Charing Cross Station came in, in in toward the latter part of the uh, 19th century, they decided that they would buy some of the leases if people were interested to sell. So they bought the lease from the Cravens to what eventually becomes number 36 because uh, there wasn't the numbering exactly that, that came later. Mm-hmm. But they, they bought the, they bought the uh, freehold to the building and we didn't know, we, we had heard that it was called the Empress Hotel. So they would operate these small hotels. We were just two minutes away from Charing Cross Station. How fantastic if you were coming up to London to do your shopping or have a, a, a city break as they were in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, our house is very well situated. Or if you were gonna be traveling to other points you might come stay overnight. And wouldn't you know that one day, just out of the blue, somebody sent us about, gosh, six years ago or so, a calling card which said the Empress Hotel. And then it said it was a 
a good place to stay. And then on the lower left-hand side, it said Benjamin Franklin House. <laughs> That's really cool. What, you know, what amazes me about this, this house is that it's got such a long history that it was built by English royalists, but then it was occupied by perhaps America's most famous rebel. And I'm wondering then, when did the Benjamin Franklin House become a public history site? And what is your mission? Yes, well, actually, I think what you touch on is part of why Benjamin Franklin House is so important and why Franklin's time in London is so important to the story, not only of America, but also to British history as well. Because for much of that time, even though Franklin had clear eyes about the challenges that existed between the interests of the crown and the interests of the colony, he could see that if each side gave a little bit that you could meet in the middle. Hopefully we are recording this in December, 2020. Um, there will be some type of accommodation between two sides, <laughs> between <laughs> the United Kingdom and the European Union who are in discussions, uh, last ditch discussions. But in the case of the crown and the colonies, Franklin could see both sides. He just thought if they could give a little bit, um, then everybody could be happy but we know that that wasn't uh, quite to be. But what happens is, and we talk about this in what we do at Benjamin Franklin House, because our main offering is a piece of theater. It's called the historical experience that runs through the spaces of the building, the, the historic rooms that tell the story about Franklin and London, because to the extent that people know anything about Franklin, they tend not to know about this period of his life, when in fact he lived longer, this nearly 16 years at Craven Street, than he did uh, certainly his eight years in France, uh, his years growing up as a, as a young man in Boston, you know, outside of Philadelphia, it was, no, it was the place that he lived the longest. So Franklin's transition from being a loyal subject of the king to being this reluctant rebel uh, is, is happening when he is in the house. And one of the things that is the catalyst for this is something which is called the Hutchinson Affair. Um, Thomas Hutchinson was the last royal appointed governor of Massachusetts and was getting increasingly frustrated with a discontented group of citizens in, in Massachusetts that he was finding increasingly hard to control. And he wrote a letter. He said, well, if things could get out of hand, and if they get out of hand, there'll be no other alternative but to send in the troops. So one of Franklin's official crown roles when he's living in Craven Street is to be the postmaster for the colonies. And Franklin was so good at keeping secrets, like never revealing who the mother of William, his uh, firstborn son, was. He never revealed who leaked these letters of Thomas Hutchinson to him. But it led to one person accusing another person of having leaked these letters. And they had a duel in Hyde Park because they were both angry that one accused the other one. And it wasn't a very successful duel because they both lived. And Franklin, because they were going to go back at it, finally Franklin 
Christmas Day, 1773, writes something in a local paper and he says, I'm not gonna tell you who my source was, but I am the person who leaked these letters. And so when he had sent them to Boston, to people like Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty, he said, don't print them, but just be aware of what's being said. Of course, they were agitating toward revolution, so it would suit their cause very well to print these letters. And Franklin is not credited usually with the Boston Tea Party, but I think it it definitely was something that helped to inflame the passions that were already running quite high. And so I like to think of Franklin as kind of unwittingly causing the Boston Tea Party. There's a trial in the House of Commons. Franklin is called before the cockpit, as it was called. And there's the Solicitor General who's going to try the case. It's supposed to be a case about removing Thomas Hutchinson back in Massachusetts uh, from office for not being fit. But instead, because Franklin had many enemies among the elite who just thought that the Americans were ungrateful for the support that they received from the crown, that they were asking too much, or they didn't really care to find out what exactly they were asking for, which of course we know was taxation without representation. But this trial is one that really marks Franklin's time as a person who went into that parliament maybe still believing in, uh, that he could affect some type of a reconciliation, but he is so humiliated, even though Franklin doesn't say anything in his own defense. And in fact, one of his friends uh, says, because Franklin's greatest weapon was his pen. He was not a natural order. He didn't like public speaking. And one of his friends said, well, you didn't say much. And uh, he said, well, I thought they were throwing up all this mud. I would wait until it dried and, and brush it off. But he's writing to his son um, after the trial in the summer of 1774. He's saying to William, it's not looking good. I don't think we're going to be able to get there. You should be considering your own position. And of course, this is something that William, who, though he was illegitimate, was obviously a bright individual, and with his father's support and his own natural talents had become the royal governor of New Jersey. Franklin was so proud of his son, as we can imagine. But when he's writing to William saying, you should probably think about vacating your, your role, William is writing back to his father and saying, what you're asking me to do is treasonous. I am a subject of the king. So when it came time to make a choice, even though Franklin was very much Anglo-American with a mother born on Nantucket, with a father from Ecton, Northamptonshire, he decided that he was first and foremost an, an American. I've had the pleasure of working with not only yourself, but also some of your colleagues, Caitlin Hoffman and Eleanor Hamblin there and on, on a couple of projects recently. And I'm wondering then what kind of educational initiatives and what kind of scholarly initiatives you have at the Benjamin Franklin House? Because um, I know that uh, folks who are looking for additional information about some of those opportunities on this side of the Atlantic or on your side of the Atlantic might like to know more about them. Yes, absolutely. 
Well, as I mentioned, our main public offering is the historical experience where we're using live performance, sound, and visual projection to tell the story of Franklin in London. And we think that would have really interested Franklin because he says he's born too soon. He wishes he would have been around a couple hundred years on to see what was made from his passion for innovation. And in fact, that is the the essence of what we're about, uh, Jim, at Benjamin Franklin House. Our mission is bringing history to life um, and innovation to life uh, through this very wonderful, small, quirky Georgian building. So the historical experience is, is first and foremost. We also have a student science center. So our core constituency are inner city London schools. We want to inspire them with Franklin's London science. He was doing all kinds of things. He even invented an instrument when he was living in the house. So Franklin is very good about looking at something, thinking there's gotta be a better way. So he'd seen the musical glasses, like we all know we can do, rubbing your hand around the rim of a glass. And he had seen a performance of the musical glasses, but he thought, well, it's, it doesn't seem very easy to sustain a note from one glass to the next. And if you want to have different octaves and control this a lot better. So he had glass bowls ground to different octaves. He runs a rod through the center of these bowls. He invents a treadle so that they will spin. He you put your fingers in water. You place them on this kind of glass larvae and it makes an incredibly ethereal sound. Mozart, Beethoven, one of the box composed for this Franklin harmonica. It's still used today. Um, it features in the Harry Potter score and uh, in, in other things, uh, even earlier uh, in the 19th century, in the madness scene of Lucia de Lammermoor, the great opera by Donizetti. So it's still vibrant set of sounds that you can hear. And our young people in the Student Science Center are, are getting a chance to play a modern version. Franklin would have loved that our harmonica is electrified makes it a lot easier to, to spin. And they are looking at those principles of the scientific method about wondering, hypothesizing, testing, trying, measuring, going back again to prove your hypotheses. So the Student Science Center is a really important uh, way that we can engage young people, but they also uh, visit the building as a whole, and there pretty much isn't any subject that you can't make a Franklin connection with. So really honing in on aspects of the UK national curriculum and uh, trying to get across issues around citizenship, history, innovation to the young people that come to visit us. And, and in fact, we don't have an immense uh, budget but we definitely don't want price ever to be a barrier to entry. So all of our educational provision is free. And so we've served over 30,000 school children in our student science center since opening on the 300th birthday in 2006. And we do lots of outreach into the community. We have a literary prize for young writers. We have a debate, frankly speaking, the winner of that usually gets to go off to a summer institute run by the U.S. State Department, which claims Benjamin Franklin, like the U.S. Postal Service, as it's uh, one of its founders. So 
we are doing family days. We do a Saturday science club for, for young people. And then beyond that, we have our top floor, which is the Robert H. Smith Scholarship Center. And we do about 40 public events a year. Now, 2020 has been exceptionally challenging year for the world, and we haven't been able to run our programming as we necessarily would have liked. But that being said, we quickly moved to enhance our digital offerings. We always did have quite a bit that we did that way, but we really have just moved things online. We've introduced new programming like uh, Ben's Digital Book Club, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we do regular lectures online. So we're really trying to maintain the excitement of our programming. We're, we're also very excited that uh, some of our key partners, um, one of whom is the colleagues at Bloomberg Philanthropy, have uh, invited us uh, this year to take part in their Bloomberg Connects app, which features the best of culture between London and New York. So alongside some amazing institutions like the Guggenheim and the Frick, there is little Benjamin Franklin House in London. Well, actually, I have to say, I didn't know about the Bloomberg Connects until yesterday when I was doing some prep for the show. That's a really cool thing. I, 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 I had a great time scrolling through your content and, you know, listening to lectures and finding all various kinds of bits of information that I, I want to digitally, even though it's going to be a long time, I would imagine, before I can actually go to London and see Benjamin Franklin's house. Well, we hope not too long, but yes, that is, um, that's a wonderful way that you can dig into content when you're actually visiting the house, but that anyone can learn about our history and many of the things that I've discussed and also have a chance to uh, participate in some of our, of our programming. And we'll be introducing some exciting things in 2021. Uh, we are recording a podcast series called Frank Views with the L-I-N of Franklin in brackets next to the Frank. Uh, and we are looking at a modern publishers and because, of course, that's what did put Franklin on the international map. Hearing from people like uh, Nigel Newton, the founder of Bloomsbury, uh, YSG, who's the chairman of scientific publisher Elsevier, uh, hearing their stories. And also we'll be looking at uh, diplomacy as well as a strand that was so important to Benjamin Franklin and, and other areas. So we're always trying to innovate and ensure that we have something for, for everyone. That's fantastic, and I'll be looking forward to it. Marcia, I thought we might close by asking a little bit about or talking a little bit about your tenure there at the Benjamin Franklin House. Can you tell us a little bit about when you joined the organization and what you've attempted to do there as uh, the director of the Ben Franklin House? Well, I was a student when I first heard that there was something called Benjamin Franklin House. Still, we aren't as widely known as we should be, and we're working on that. I was just amazed that there was a derelict building in the center of London that had never been open before. And I thought initially this would be easy. This is over 15 years ago. And I thought Benjamin Franklin's only surviving house. I was finishing a PhD at the London School of Economics thinking about, uh, I had a part of my life as I still do today, which is about business, but I 
wasn't going to teach at least um, initially. So I thought, what am I going to do? And I uh, was in, uh, I was working for what was then called the American Chamber of Commerce and a gentleman um, had said that there was an interesting project. Um, and because I was involved with the American community in London, I might know somebody who was interested because the board of this thing called Benjamin Franklin House was interested in finding somebody to help them open it it as a museum and educational facility. And I just knew from hearing about that, that it was my calling. My favorite quote uh, from Franklin's 13 Virtues is something like, you know, perform without fail uh, what you resolve. I'm paraphrasing. And, you know, when it's your calling and you need to do it, you just have to Get, get on. And even though, you know, we survived lots of things like a ceiling falling on my head, <laughs> I wasn't hurt. I was just very dusty. No. Um, whatever, whatever it took, it's been a huge labor of love. I've had, uh, you mentioned a couple wonderful team members and we've had, we have a wonderful alumni program where uh, people who've worked for us are now, you know, dotted across um, different institutions like historic royal palaces and and um, the National Trust. So it's wonderful to see these colleagues um, go out into the world and, and continue to make their way in the field of heritage. But I, my initial mission was to just get that house open to the public. I thought, okay, center of London, Franklin's only surviving home. This is gonna be easy maybe two years tops, but actually it took six years. Um, we had to find the equivalent of about $5 million to um, get all of that conservation work done, to do all the prototyping for these offerings. And uh, we are very grateful to the Robert H. Smith uh, Family Foundation, which has been a, a great partner. And our most important uh, UK supporter has been the National Lottery Heritage Fund, which supports heritage projects. They've just been with us you know, every step of the way. It doesn't mean that it's easy to keep a small cultural institution open, but uh, I myself, I was raised by an amazing single mother and she used to say, um, you know, somehow the money always comes. And I always have held on to that even in, in lean times and just believed, you know, that the, the house has so much potential and I've been so, honor to be part of its journey as an open facility for the world. Well, I can just say from personal experience working with you all, uh, you're doing some fantastic work. And as I said, I'm really looking forward to actually getting over there and seeing it in person. But in the meantime, I'll continue to check out uh, your various digital offerings. Uh, Marcia, thanks so much for joining us today. I know it's late there in London, but I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I know that our audience will be fascinated to learn more about Benjamin Franklin House. Well, Jim, thank you so much. And, and we've been particularly delighted to collaborate with the Washington Library and with Mount Vernon. And we are very excited about other ways that we'll be able to collaborate into the future. As am I. We'll take care and thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, team. Our listener voice message for today is from Lindsay, who I believe is from Michigan. She has more of a comment than a question about episode 184, Becoming Citizens of Convenience on the U.S.-Canadian Border with Lawrence B.A. Hatter, about the way that we, and I'm using the royal we here, pronounce certain Michigan place names. Lindsay, thanks so much for listening and for taking the time to drop us a line. We certainly appreciate it, and we hope to hear from you again in the future. 
And if you out there in the audience would like to leave a voice message for a chance to be featured on the show, you can do so by going to www.anchor.fm slash Mount Vernon. Lindsay, take it away. Hello, this is Lindsay, and I am currently listening to episode 184 about U.S. citizens and British subjects crossing the new northern border between the new United States and Canada. And the guest is Lawrence B.A. Hatter. He's doing a fantastic job, and I'm really enjoying it. But I just had to stop in the middle of it to point out that he is not pronouncing Mackinac correctly. Any Michigander will tell you that hearing Mackinac and Michelle Mackinac is like nails on a chalkboard. It's all pronounced Mackinac, regardless of whether it's spelled with a C or a W at the end. Mackinac City versus Mackinac Bridge and Island, etc. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. I love your podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.